Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sound Practice podcast. I'm Cheryl Toth, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, and today we are going to take a bit of a deeper dive into the topic of telehealth. Hey there, Tothy. I'm glad we're doing this. You recently did a terrific interview with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz, Chief Medical Officer of MD Live, and he gave us the 30,000-foot view of telehealth trends and opportunities for optimizing physician productivity. Yeah, and Dr. Lyle had so many thoughtful ideas and experiences that he shared that uh, somebody from Green Branch Publishing said they wished he could be put in charge of reinventing the entire healthcare system. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> um, I sort of agree because he's been around for a long time and I love his philosophy and his practicality and his sense of humor. Oh my God, why do that to poor Dr. Lyle? Put him <laughs> in charge of everything. Oh, brutal. So <laughs> I know that he jumped on email and video visits way faster than most physicians, like back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Folks, if you haven't listened to the uh, episode uh, that is entitled, Is Telehealth the New Blacks? You really should do that. And you can find that in your Apple or Google podcast feed if you subscribe to our show or at soundpracticepodcast.com. It is well worth listening to Tothi interview Dr. Lyle to get some inspiration about where things are headed. Yeah, there's definitely some good stuff in there. And like you said, Mike, um, Dr. Lyle gave us a broad view of telehealth trends, where he thinks it fits well into the continuum of care. But today, we're going to get more granular with our two guests. Very true. Today, we're going to cover more nuts and bolts, and that is going to be provided by our guest, Dr. Alfred Atunda, pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Alfred I. DuPont Hospital, and her friend, Betty Hovey, a consultant and coding educator with Karen Zupko and Associates. Yeah, Dr. Atanda has been delivering telehealth visits for several years. He's even conducted a study of those visits, and he's going to talk a little bit about that data and what he's, what he's learned. He has a lot of great stories. Um, I found the ones interesting where he talks about uh, what happens when physicians start seeing patients at home while they're cooking dinner and taking care of the kids, <laughs> and also how he's using telehealth to connect with more than just patients. Ooh, I can't wait to hear those stories. And Betty Hovey's going to talk about how to get organized and be sure you get paid for telemedicine visits payers, uh, by payers and patients. She's really on top of the reimbursement side of things, which, Tothi, I think we can all agree is oh so important. It's really important. It's really important. So she's going to cover that reimbursement. Dr. Atanda will cover things from the physician's uh, perspective and lessons learned. And they're both terrific. So let's wrap up this chatter and get on with those interviews. That is right after I tell you what I chose for the word of the show. Woohoo! All right, Tothi, it's that time. Word of the show, lay it on me. Well, I picked something I thought was very appropriate for today's topic. It's a 15th century word derived from the Latin verb portendere, which means to predict or foretell. So Merriam-Webster defines this word as to give an omen or anticipatory sign of, or secondary definition is to indicate or signify. Is this the time for the drum roll? <laughs> well, not necessarily um, do we need a drum roll because I will end your anticipation and everyone's and tell you that the word is portend, portend. I portend that telehealth is going to be quickly a viable and patient preferred way to be seen by physicians and not for all conditions or reasons, of course, but for many. Well, good choice, Tothi. I like it. <laughs> Thanks. And now on with tactical tips for telehealth. So I'm joined in the virtual studio today by pediatric orthopedic surgeon and director of the sports medicine department at the Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Alfred Atanda. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Atanda. 
Uh, thanks, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You are very welcome. I've been eager to have you on because we, you and I, our paths have crossed in the past, and I know that you have a lot of really um, helpful and uh, granular tips because you've you've been through the startup implementation. Um, you know, you deliver, you deliver televisits. So that's what we're going to talk about today is a lot of your lessons learned, kind of what works, what doesn't, and, and more of the uh, 5,000 foot view, I guess you could say, you know, how does this really work in practice? But before we get to that, uh, let me just tell the listeners that um, Dr. Atanda went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, and he did his residency at the University of Chicago. And then he, he did a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at the DuPont Hospital for Children, and then subsequently another one in sports medicine at the Thomas Jefferson at Thomas Jefferson University. And I know you've been offering, I think, uh, telemedicine visits now for about three years. Is that right? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you came to telemedicine and just a little bit more about your practice and your group and your department? Kind of kick us off here, Dr. Atanda, and give us the four one one on you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I can do that. I'll don't don't give me free reign. I will talk your ear off. So, um, but no, seriously, yeah. So I'm um, at Dupont Hospital for Children. Um, we're at an academic hospital. Um, there are about 13 of us orthopedic surgeons in our group. We're the largest uh, surgical subspecialty, and uh, I head up the sports medicine program. Um, I've been there the last eight years, I, almost eight years. I started in August of 2011. Um, you know, I've, I've always been kind of tech savvy, I guess. Um, and I'm one of the younger guys, uh, and gals in the group. And, um, probably about three, maybe four years ago now is when I kind of first did my, my first telemedicine visit with one of my post-op patients. Um, our hospital has, has, has the video platform as well as the America Well platform available to us. Um, and I don't know exactly how I, I stumbled upon the telehealth group, but, uh, I heard about what they were doing. And I thought, well, hey, this may be cool to incorporate into our practice, um, mostly because I treat a lot of young, healthy athletes, and uh, they want to be on the field. They don't want to be in my office. Um, so if we can figure out a way to utilize this technology to move information and move data and move knowledge, uh, as opposed to moving people um, in certain instances, I think that would be very helpful. Uh, not just for them as patients, but as a provider too, because some of these televisits, as you can imagine, I can do from home or mm -hmm. uh, wherever is most convenient for me. So um, it's been a kind of a whirlwind tour, and I think um, you know the technology is booming. There's so many vendors out there, and there's so much excitement about telehealth and telemedicine. Um, in surgical subspecialties, specifically orthopedics, it hasn't really, you know, caught in, uh, caught um, the eye of most of the surgeons. I would say. As you know, it's probably mostly pediatricians, internists, urgent care, family practice, ER docs that are that are using it very wide in a widespread fashion. But you know, orthopedics is slowly, at least hearing what I have to say about it, and uh, you know, I've been at a few of our meetings talking about it. Um, so it's not as widespread as I would like, but um, it's definitely moving fast. Um, and we were mostly doing it clinically, just with like our own patients, um, but then we started. Um, branching out into different venues, like doing provider-to-provider -provider consultations. Uh -huh. I've been covering athletic trainers and, and covering school and sporting events via telehealth. Um, and then our research um, has been taken off too the past couple of years. So it's been it's been very exciting for me. Well, that's great. Let before we get to the because uh, I'm intrigued about the athletic trainers um, and what you're doing there. But let's sure. talk a little bit about uh, how you who what are what are some of the conditions that you treat and at what points in the care process? Like I'm imagining that maybe some of this is post-op care you use a televisit for, or maybe it's part of the pre-op or, you know, or, or what, what kind of, what kind of visit types, if you will, are, are you delivering by telehealth and what seems to work well? And, and remi reminding the listeners that you're pediatric orthopedics, right? So your whole department, this yes. is only pediatrics, right? Okay. Yeah. So we're at a children's hospital. So we take into account busy moms, busy dads, uh, work schedules, school schedules. Um, so the particular use cases, at least for me, that work really well um, are, are post-operative visits, are simple follow-ups, um, wound checks, um, results reviews. So if you're re reviewing MRIs, you're reviewing CAT scans, you're reviewing laboratory results. 
those are very, very good. Um, surgical discussions are, are very good also because majority of those visits that I just described are mostly centered around information transfer. So, and, and they're already in a setting in which I've already met the patient or they're an established patient of our practice. Mm -hmm. um, the one situation we definitely don't do is brand new patients. So if you're kind of off the street and you have knee pain and you've never been seen or evaluated by anybody, um, it's really hard to do a thorough evaluation and provide good care without placing hands on the patient, uh, feeling joints, feeling range of motion, that sort of thing. But for folks who we've seen, who we know, who are part of our practice, and they need to just kind of check in with us at some time point during their care with something that revolves mostly around either just looking at something, like if you're just doing a range of motion check, mm -hmm. or if you're just providing guidance and information and expertise as in the surgical discussion or MRI review or something, those hands down work really, really well for, for telehealth and telemedicine. And I've been very happy um, with that. I didn't know that at first. Um, we kind of just, you know, chanced upon it with the first patient I ever did was a post-operative ACL patient that lived about 100 miles from our hospital. Um, and, and, and seeing that, that it was kind of a quick post-op visit where I just needed to look at his wounds and check his range of motion, I saw that... Um, it can actually be expanded to a lot of post-ops because there's not a whole lot that you physically do um, at those visits. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and so you I, just, you're doing these as a live video visit. I'm gathering this isn't a, a store and forward. So you're actually asking the patient to do a range of motion check or you're look, having them move the camera near their incision site or things like that. Is that actually what's occurring during these visits? Those are the type of things that have worked. In doing yeah, the so, yeah, so we do, in, with our own clinical patients uh, in the hospital, we do um, live synchronous uh, video conferencing. Um, so if the patient is a, is a very big, uh, plays a very big role in the visit because, you know, they're, they're manning the camera and they're moving things. They're flipping from a front camera to a rear camera. Um, and the good thing is these are all kids, so they're, they're very tech savvy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's they really know what's going on. Probably half the time the parent is like fumbling around trying to log on to the app and do this and do that. And the kids kind of take over. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it works really well. And, and to be honest with you, you know, having people in their home environment is very convenient, very comfortable from, for them. Um, and you get a glimpse into their world. I mean, you see cats and dogs running around. You see little babies, brother and sister and diapers running around. So you're kind of catching them a snapshot in their world, whereas when they come to the office, it's kind of a new, sterile kind of medical environment. Um, so you definitely can tell that the people, the patients feel very comfortable. Um, and if they have to wait a few minutes, they typically don't care because they're just sitting in their house on their bed or in, in the living room or something. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very neat um, seeing that kind of dynamic with the patient-provider relationship. I, I hadn't. I hadn't quite thought about that. I mean, it could tell, this is like I'm proposing, could telehealth uh, eliminate all of those negative feedback uh, loops on patient satisfaction surveys because there's no more waiting in the reception area with old magazines. Yeah. I mean, you're just at home. You're, you're fixing a sandwich or you're, you know, petting the dog just waiting to be seen. And it, it makes a, it's a completely different dynamic, which I hadn't even really thought of. But I, I have heard some physicians, especially when they're doing uh, more of a primary care type of visit uh, or a chronic condition mm -hmm. check, that this idea that you get a window into their world at home is huge, you know, and some, some physicians have said they've, they've noticed hoarding situations and uh, other things that have, you know, and incented them to get social worker involved. But from an orth from your type of care in orthopedics, is there anything that's beneficial for the type of care that you deliver that you might see in a home, like, I don't know, rugs that should be removed so people don't trip and fall, like those kinds of things? Or is it more just strengthening the relationship with the patient and giving them that convenience option? Yeah, you know, it's funny because like with some of our medical colleagues, there are lots of things that they can see. Another thing, uh, people who treat asthma, when they see like lots of animals and, you know, pet dander and dogs and cats, then that kind of tips them off on how to counsel those patients. But in mm -hmm. orthopedics specifically, in my travels, I, I haven't really come across anything unique to the house that would affect or influence the care that I provide. But mm -hmm. um, 
I definitely know that they're content and they're relaxed. Um, and oftentimes I'm a little late and I sign on and the kids like sitting there playing video games or mom's <laughs> like in the kitchen cooking, like people are just like living their lives. Um, and they just pop in and they talk to me and they go back to just living their life. So that whole convenience factor is huge because, yeah. you know, I have two little kids and taking, it's funny because today, later today, I have to take my son to get new glasses and I'm like dreading it because I have to get up. <laughs> I have to pile him and his brother in the car. I have to drive, you know, over to Jersey, over the bridge and do this and do that. If there was a way that I could get that and not have to get up off my couch, I mean, it'd be huge, you know, yeah. it'd be phenomenal. So. Um, yeah, from our standpoint, I think it's mostly like a, a convenience factor. Um, but you know, that shouldn't be downplayed. That, that, that's very, you know, it's worth a lot to people. It is. It is. And I think, you know, this goes back to just something in your LinkedIn profile that I read that I liked um, about how, and we had a physician on in the previous episode that we, we talked about telehealth. And he raised this point too, that physicians need to start thinking about innovative ways to increase patient satisfaction and deliver great care and reduce costs. And so I don't think this can be minimized. This idea that patients don't have to be so inconvenienced and can still get great care. And you mentioned earlier about information transfer, that a lot of what you're doing in these televisits, you don't have to be laying on a pants necessarily, but you're educating the patient, you're checking on something, you're telling them, you're giving them maybe additional instruction. So all of those things I think are those innovative ways that you say that you're, you know, looking to pursue and it is the next, it's the next generation of how we deliver care. So I think that's pretty Definitely. cool. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. Tell me, uh, we've, we've talked about what it's like in the visit. Let's back up a little bit and give listeners an overview of how does this actually work in terms of how you schedule the patient? Do they sign anything? I mean, if, if listeners out there were thinking about, implementing this where where do they what should they think about operationally in terms of how this uh happens logistically in the practice yeah so i mean first and foremost you have to talk to your chairman your your chairperson your your c-suite level folks people who are kind of in charge to really get buy-in from them it's not going to be the kind of thing that you do as a like a renegade doc on your own um and once you get buy-in from folks yeah i mean there's a lot of operational issues um, first and foremost, the scheduling is, is key. So we have an electronic medical record. We use Epic and all the visits are scheduled in Epic, just like all the in-person visits um, are scheduled. So it doesn't um, really create a burden for the patient in terms of scheduling and they use their insurance just like they would normally. Um, and like I said, we have two platforms that we use. I usually use the video platform. I think personally, it's just a little uh, simpler and easier for the patients uh, as well as myself. Uh, so the patients, uh, they get a link um, from our telehealth uh, team. Uh, they do like kind of a prep visit where they show them how to download the app and they get a link um, and they kind of walk them through that. Um, everybody is signs like a consent uh, for telehealth that they have to do. Um, and this is all done on the back end um, by the telehealth administration, which is key. Um, we've kind of blossomed into kind of a well-oiled machine now, whereas when it first started, a lot of this, I did. So if like, I had to call the patient ahead of time, show them how to download the app, troubleshoot things when things went wrong, uh -huh. that was always very scary. But now it's kind of foolproof, and, and I have a whole team that supports that. So, you know, once we get linked on, if something does drop off, there's usually somebody that notices that, and they can kind of talk the family through it and troubleshoot them. Um, and then we do the visit like we would do any in-person visit, um, and then I document it, uh, just like I would document anything, and then the visit ends. Um, so from the clinical perspective, it's actually quite similar to what you do normally. The key is just getting appropriate buy-in from, from your leaders and then making sure that the, the billing questions, the legal questions are answered by the appropriate folks. And that's all going to be state-dependent. It's going to be payer-dependent. So those are the kind of things that I, I really lean on my telehealth administrators for. They, they kind of work through all of those issues for us as providers, which is nice. Uh, when we started out, I didn't have that luxury and I kind of had to you know, bear the brunt of some of that. Um, so if you're kind of with a, in a fledgling program and thinking about getting things off the ground, um, appropriate buy-in, legal matters, billing matters, and just workflow issues and scheduling are going to be some of the things that you really should map out and tackle uh, before you do your first visit. 
That's great advice. And we're, we're going to be speaking with Betty Hovey, who I know you know, um, after this. And oh, we'll, yeah. Hopefully she's going to give us some guidance on where to start um, because uh, that is, is so key. I mean, we don't want to have physicians delivering visits that can't get paid for. I mean, sometimes if, if it's not yeah. covered visit, I know a lot of people will pay out of pocket, but then you've got to navigate that as well. How does the payment happen? So we'll talk to Betty about that. But um, I think it's interesting that in the beginning you did that. I see you as troubleshooting the app down, the downloads and everything to make sure that, that people knew how to use it. That's great. You mean you learned it from yeah. the ground up? Every little, you learned a lot of lessons, I'll bet. What, what, oh, what definitely. Yeah, what would you say was a good lesson or two that you thought might work, but you tried it and you're like, nope, this doesn't, this isn't working. I need to do it another way. Anything in particular that you'd share? Um, so the big thing that I noticed is that you have to be versatile and flexible. So the thing that I realized early on is that you have to have multiple ways to connect with the patient because you invariably will find that your iPhone ran out of batteries or the sound on your iPad's not working mm-hmm. or you know the, the, the camera on your laptop isn't working. So when I do these visits, um, at least when I started off, I'd have three, four different modalities of ways that I can sign onto the app and talk to the families because there were just so many obstacles and technological issues that would arise. And I did most of these visits after hours because I didn't, I didn't know how to integrate it into my in-person visits. Uh-huh. So I would save them for like 6.30, 7 p.m. at night when the clinic was closed and the staff would leave and I'd be talking to a patient and then like all of a sudden they couldn't hear me anymore um, or like my phone would die or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, God, like uh, what? Gone. <laughs> my secretary's gone at 7.15 at night. And I, you know what? You learn the hard way, you know? And for me personally, like just being, being flexible, number one, and being patient because like, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Like things aren't going to go the way they plan and technology can always, always crap out on you at the yep. worst time. Um, so really sticking with it, really like in your mind, seeing the big picture and being forward thinking enough to overcome those obstacles obstacles and overcome those hurdles and be prepared to deal with with situations that just aren't ideal and and every now and again it's not common but every now and again you get into a situation where you're like you know what I really wish I could touch the patient or examine them and in those situations I do tell them like listen um you know your wound is draining a little bit or it looks a little red I'm not sure like I'm really going to need you to come in mm-hmm. um and most people are okay with that because you know, if I told you at the visit that, you know what, I can't do something because of whatever, I need you to come back tomorrow, well, most people would flip out because right. they have to take more time off of work and more time out of school. But remember, these people are sitting in their house just watching yeah. TV. So I'm like, you know what, now you need to come in. And most people are like, all right, well, okay, we'll make an appointment. We'll come in, you know. So um, long story short, that was very long-winded. I think being being flexible and being patient is something that I learned very, very early on, that's going to be more successful to a telehealth practice than the actual healthcare that you're delivering, um, if that makes sense. And have a plan B is what I hear you saying. You know, have multiple modalities. Have a, what are we going to do if the battery dies in the iPhone and, oh, we've got a backup plan. So that, and right. I would imagine that the, now your telehealth team, do they let people know, do they provide that information? Like, hey, if, if this isn't working right, this is another way to contact the doctor and facilitate exactly they 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 they, they kind of debrief them um they tell them that listen you know you should be on your home wi-fi don't be on cellular 3g or 4g Mm -hmm. um do it in certain buildings that don't have this kind of walls like brick walls or what have you um they to use your iphone or your ipad or your laptop preferentially depending on your service carrier there's all these sorts of things that again (laughs) As painful as it sounds, in the beginning, I had no idea. Like, I'd right. say, oh, you sign on to your phone. I didn't know that Wi-Fi was better than 4G. I'm not an IT guy. I'm not a techie guy in that, in that regard. Um, but it, it, it's growing pains. You know, nothing of, of worth is going to be great overnight. And it's very nice to be able to, like, you're asking me these questions. Like, I'm looking back to when I started, and I'm, like, cringing, like, thinking, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I used to go through that. Um, <laughs> But, but that, that's going to happen, um, especially if you're starting from the ground up. But it's exciting. 
Um, and it gives you like a nice sense of accomplishment to see kind of where you've come from and uh, how much we've achieved as a group now. Do you find that the visits are shorter, longer than an in-person visit, about the same? Somebody asked me about that the other day and I thought, you know, I, I really don't know. How, do, they, do they turn out to be about the same length? So, so we have done um, research um, that we can get into later if you want. But in a nutshell, we compared a bunch of in-person visits with um, telehealth visits. And what we found were that the telehealth visits on average were about 17 minutes in length. Um, two of the minutes were kind of fiddling with the app and downloading the app. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, our in-person visits from the time they check in to the time they check out were about an hour and eight minutes. Wow. Um, so obviously they're not with the provider for an hour and eight minutes. They're, they're check-in and yeah. then they check out waiting. an hour, and eight minutes later. Right. So they're waiting, they're getting lost, they're doing this, they're doing that. So the bottom line is the percentage of time that you spend in person with the provider is about 10 to 15%. Whereas with telehealth, 85% of the time that you are signed on, you're with me. Um, so the visit is not only shorter, but you definitely get more bang for your buck. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and invariably you're actually getting to spend more time with me because it's, it's, you're at home and we sign in and we directly talk. Whereas when you come in person, um, you're there and you have to get, you know, checked in and get weighed and all this stuff. Um, so invariably we tend to be in a rush just to kind of get you in and out and get to the next patient. Mm-hmm. Whereas with telehealth, you don't really have that. And to be honest with you, it's kind of counterintuitive, but the patient is actually more in a rush in telehealth. And I'll tell you why. So yeah. if you're an average parent, you take half a day off of work, you take your kid out of school, you drive 30 miles, you go to the doctor's office. When you're there in front of that doctor, you're going to get your money's worth. You're going to ask every question, uh-huh. every point, anything you can think of, you're going to bring it up. Why? Because it takes a tremendous amount of energy and you have to overcome all this inertia just to get in front of the doctor. Whereas with telehealth, you're sitting in your house minding your own business. So I find that people are rushing me off of the phone because they're like, <laughs> okay, doc, I asked my three questions and, you know, the soup's boiling and right. I got to get to my next We're sitting down to dinner. And, yeah, we got to get to soccer. Right. <laughs> thanks, thanks again, doc. We'll see you later. Take care. And, and they're gone. And I'm yeah. like trying to keep them on. And that's, you know, I haven't formally measured that with any like rigorous research methodology, but that anecdotally speaking, I feel like they just want to get in and get out. Like they just want to get back to doing what they're doing, which is interesting because in person, I know they, they, they want to keep you there because they are like, you know what? I spent half my day getting here. I'm going to take the time and get my questions answered. So it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting thing to see how you're flipping up healthcare delivery, basically flipping it upside down. Um, and just seeing all the differences when, when you use virtual care and deliver care virtually. Um, yeah. So long story short, the visits are shorter. Well, and tell me, you, this is part of what you learned in your research and your experience. So tell me a little bit more about some highlights of the research. What, what are some of the pearls that you can share from the study that you did? How many patients was it? And how, I think, did you tell me it was two years? I, I can't remember. You tell me. And it was like, it was. Yeah, I mean, overall, it was about a two-year cohort of patients. I think there was about 120, 125 patients, um, 125 visits, excuse me. Some okay. of the patients had multiple um, visits. So those were about te- 120 or so telehealth visits, and we compared them to about 100 or so in-person visits. And we looked at mostly the time at which the visits took, so from check-in to check-out or sign-on to sign-off. And then we looked at um, miles um, traveled and miles saved um, for the people who were at home. And we saw that, you know, round trip, um, our average um, patients drove, it was somewhere around 50-ish or 60-ish miles round trip, uh, or maybe even a little higher. Like I think it was like about 80, 85 miles um, round trip that people did not have to drive when they did a telehealth visit. Um, we looked at the cost. So the labor costs associated with a telehealth visit um, Basically, it's literally just my time, right? Because I'm the only person that's interacting with the patient. Whereas when you do an in-person visit, you check in. That's one person you interact with, right? You get your height and weight check with the MA, and that's another person you 
you're interacting with. And then you get roomed by an assistant and then, you know, the x-ray tech and all this stuff that you're doing. Um, all of those people are being paid. Everybody who interacts with you, theoretically, someone is paying them. And there's also the indirect cost, right? When you're in a room, you're consuming air conditioning and oxygen. You may wash your hands and utilize water. Um, we print stuff and give it to you. Somebody has to pay for that paper. It's the wear and tear in the printer. It's the ink in the printer. So there's lots of costs that we couldn't um, evaluate either. But basically what we found was that there was about a maybe $25 to $30 cost savings per patient um, in terms of the direct labor costs that we were saving. And we were figuring, um, looking at the time that it took for the visit and you know, how much the hourly um, wages were and all that. It wasn't a very elaborate cost analysis, but there is savings um, to the hospital and to the department uh, when you keep people at home. And then lastly, there's the patient savings. So we looked at miles traveled and then we looked at wear and tear on your car. So it costs about 60 cents um, per mile traveled to, to maintain a vehicle. So that's wear and tear on your tires, that's your insurance costs, gasoline prices, that sort of thing. Um, so people were saving about $50 um, in terms of cost when you factor all the, the miles traveled and wear and tear as well per visit they were saving. So there was definitely um, good cost savings, good time savings. Uh, and then lastly, we looked at how satisfied they were. So in terms of whether or not they would do it again, whether or not they understood everything in the visit, whether or not the audiovisual quality was good, whether or not they would recommend telehealth to another person. And we found that at least kind of 95 to 96% of people were extremely satisfied mm -hmm. um, with their telehealth. Visit. So it was, it, was, it was a lot of good data all around. Yeah, and that, that's what I hear too is the, the, uh, the happiness factor of pe people are just very satisfied with the experience overall for many of the things that you just mentioned. Um, is, and I think that's great, great research that you, I mean, that you just provided all this um, good stuff based on, here's what's, here's what's impressive to me. You started out by just trying this thing out. You're doing it at home, helping people <laughs> troubleshoot the app downloads, doing it after hours, and it's grown to this, and you've done the research and uh, really learned a lot that's been very helpful for people who are thinking about this, especially from a specialist perspective. Um, before we close up, why don't you just give me a little bit about, we've been talking about the patient visit, but you I don't want to lose the thread that you open by saying some of the televisits you do are with athletic trainers and uh, we'll set aside the research for this. That's probably another episode, but tell us sure. how that works with the athletic trainers that you work with. Yeah. So as a sports medicine surgeon, um, one of the primary kind of facets of your job is to cover athletes and cover sporting events. As you know, you watch the NBA and the NFL, NHL, there's all these docs kind of running onto the field and the court taking care of folks. But in reality, that's extremely cumbersome because these docs, these surgeons, they have a regular practice just like I do. And they have kids and a family. And then at night they have to go and cover all these games, right? Because sporting events are typically at night and on weekends. Um, so what I thought was, well, you know, I have young kids at home and my hospital is about 35 miles from my house. So to be covering high schools in the area, I just can't do it. Um, but, but that's something that helps with community outreach. It helps grow your practice and the hospital mm -hmm. looks favorably upon that. So we basically started doing virtual coverage. So, um, we cover about six high schools virtually, um, five of which I have actually never physically been to. Wow. And we, inter we interface with the, with the athletic trainers via telehealth and we do it in a variety of ways. So we do it, um, uh, kind of a la carte for some of the schools, meaning if the, if the athletic trainer has something they want to run by me or an athlete they want me to take a quick look at they text me we find a mutually agreed upon time and then we just chat via video conference some of the schools it works better if like every monday at noon we chat for like 10 or 15 minutes and go over all the injured athletes from the weekend before uh -huh. they ask questions they ask where they can send them what studies they need to get and if they don't have anybody to discuss that week they just text me and they say you know well, we don't have anybody to discuss and I found tremendously that it definitely helps with my presence in the community, but it's almost of no burden to my life um, because I can continue my practice. Sometimes I do it during clinic in between clinic patients. Sometimes I've done it in between OR cases. Um, whereas when you do it in person, um, there's no way that you can do that. And athletic trainers are, are very highly trained, highly specialized folks who 
can physically do pretty much anything on the field. And if there's something catastrophic with like a neck injury or something like that, well, you just call 911 and you send them to the hospital. I mean, if I was physically there, I'm not going to do anything either, right? right? I would just kind of stabilize them and we'll wait for the paramedics. So mostly what they need the surgeon for is, like I said, it's guidance, mm-hmm. it's expertise, it's clinical experience, it's judgment, all of which I can do from anywhere, right? Yeah. I'm not any smarter because I'm standing on the sideline of a football game or a soccer game than if I am sitting on my couch watching television. So we kind of found a way that it works for everybody because they know that I'm always available. They get the guidance and the, and the information and the, and the experience that they need. I can continue to live my life in a way where I'm not particularly burdened by having to be at all these games all the time. The hospital gets you know, their, their name out there. They get their community outreach. They get hopefully more patients coming into the facility. So it's kind of a win-win. And it's a very, it's, a, it's like a brand new field, like virtual athletic mm-hmm. coverage. I mean, it's not something that people are really doing. Sometimes they have ways where the athletic trainers um, can, can interact with um, docs in, in a way that um, it's like over the phone or it's more of like a clinic visit kind of thing, but there aren't a lot of systems that are doing live video conferencing um, or store and forward uh, asynchronous stuff uh, with athletic trainers in the way that we do it. Um, And I think giving them the versatility to connect with us whatever way they want to, how they want to um, even further facilitate facilitate that. Because a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever been around sidelines and watched what the doctors do, most of the time you're not doing anything. You're just kind of waiting for You're just on standby, basically, right? You're, so and, why not be, why not be on standby with your iPhone or your iPad or, you know, wherever you are, right? You don't have and, to be there physically. And as North, yes, and that, that you hit the nail on the head. And my time is very valuable, um, not just as an orthopedic surgeon, but just as a dad, right? I always have somewhere to be. Um, and actually, I found ways that I can cover multiple schools at the same time. Because again, it's all virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in person, I would never be able to do that. Right. Um, so that's definitely been a game changer for us. And I think we're leading the charge on trying to utilize this for not just patients, but you know, it's like provider to provider consultations uh, with the athletic trainers. And hopefully some of, we can get some of our data published and, and have some exciting research to share with you in a, in a later episode. That's great. Yep. Innovative, effective. Time efficient, all of these things are very good, very good. Um, why don't we wrap things up, Dr. Atanda? Tell, me, tell uh, th- those folks that have been listening intently to you uh, talk about all these great uh, advantages of telehealth, where should they start? If they're thinking about this, what's the one or two top things they need to do as they get going? Um, like I said before, you definitely want to get appropriate buy-in from, mm-hmm. from your leaders. Um, whether it be administration or senior physicians. Um, and then also you want to look around um, for a particularly um, inexpensive uh, platform that you can utilize um, to physically do the consult. And I would start very small. I would probably start with either a post-op or like an MRI review or a lab result review or something very easy where you just need to talk to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and then find the appropriate patient, obviously, and then just start very small and grow it, you know, over time uh, as your practice allows and your workflow allows. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, because I know your time is valuable (laughs) and we really do appreciate that you joined us on Sound Practice today. Thanks, Dr. Atanda. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. So in our studio today, our virtual studio, I have Betty Hovey, and Betty's going to talk with us about telehealth and all of those billing coding issues that I know are um, on the tops of minds of many practice managers and, and physicians out there in our, in our um, listenership. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about Betty, because I'm thrilled that she's, she's so busy, and it was great that she could squeeze us in today at Sound Practice. So Betty works for Karen Zupcone Associates, and she's a, a consultant and coding educator and auditor. Uh, She is nationally recognized in healthcare as a consultant and speaker, and she's got nearly 30 years of experience in auditing um, and education and consulting. Her passion 
is helping practices stay compliant and profitable. And I love that because here on Sound Practice, we're physician advocates. Um, so what's interesting about Betty is that she started as a coder and worked her way up to managing practices, directing departments, and then led, um, she was director of ICD-10 education and training at the AAPC. So Betty, we're happy to have you here. Welcome to Sound Practice. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you. And, and uh, um, I'm glad to be here. Good. Well, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, and I like that your perspective comes from uh, consulting and education and auditing, as well as running your own consulting company, so you have all different perspectives um, at your disposal, I guess you could say, but coming from having all that background. And um, I also think it's important because we have a variety of specialty um, audiences out there that Betty is familiar with coding and billing for dermatology, plastic surgery, cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, general surgery, GI, E&M, and a variety of other specialties. Um, and as I mentioned that she directed the ICD-10 education and training at AAPC during the heyday, right, Betty, of mm. teaching everyone the switch from 9 to 10, and she developed a lot of that educational material. So her tentacles are very deep in <laughs> all of the rules, and uh, she develops a lot of content. So Betty is... You're gonna, we're going to talk about um, implementing the billing and coding side of things, I guess you, you would say. Dr. Atanda told us about his lessons learned on the physician side and kind of the operations. Let's start <clears throat> by talking about what's billable to payers for telehealth. What it, you know, maybe we should back up and just real briefly say, what is telehealth? What does it mean, you know, in case somebody doesn't really understand what that term means? Well, according to um, the government, telehealth is uh, synchronous services, which means that they are live services had uh, by electronic means um, to where you can see the physician and the physician can see you, but you're not in the same place. Um, there is also an asynchronous type of telehealth, which is called store and forward mm -hmm. to where records and video images and um, things like that can be sent to a physician for them to look at. And that one, um, we've been doing it actually for years with like radiology, where a radiologist can dial in and take a look at films and things like that. Uh, but most of the telehealth that people talk about today and what is getting the big rub today are the synchronous type um, that where it's live and you're looking at each other, but you're just not in the same room. Okay, perfect. Well, generally speaking then, what is billable? I think that's on the tops of minds of most of our listeners. When they think about implementing telehealth, they think, I don't know if patients are going to pay for this. They love it, but will they pay for it? So what's billable to payers for telehealth? Does Medicare cover it? Do commercial payers cover it? Give us kind of an overview of that. Okay, well, those are great places to start because it's, you know, everybody might love a service, but if you're not getting paid for it, you know, you, you kind of have to stop doing it. <laughs> so um, with telehealth, you know, there's different services that are reportable to payors depending on who that payor is. For instance, Medicare, as I said before, only pays for those synchronous live telehealth services. Okay. Uh, unless you're in Alaska or Hawaii, then they'll pay for asynchronous because they have like a special project going on there. But um, Medicare does pay for telehealth services. Most commercial payors now pay for telehealth services. And if um, a patient's plan doesn't cover telehealth services, the patient him or herself can pay for the telehealth services. So um, they're covered uh, by most plans these days. Oh, okay. Well, if that's the case, then um, as practices consider offering telehealth as a service, what should they do to s kind of figure that out? I mean, it sounds like there's variance. I mean, some pay this, that. How do, where do they start when it comes to billing and reimbursement if they want to know the rules? Well, um, because Medicare, of course, is trying to push these visits, um, they're trying to, um, you know, get the value in there for the Medicare, you know, population. Mm -hmm. uh, Medicare does have resources available uh, online that will tell a practice exactly what they will and won't pay for when it comes to telehealth services. Uh, other payors also have information on their site regarding the same information 
Um, uh, I know like Blue Crosses, for instance, you can go on to their sites and if you put in telehealth in their search, it will bring up their policies and it will show you what they do and don't pay for. Okay. Um, one thing that I have noticed as far as those policy goes, goes is that Medicare does not pay for telehealth if a patient is in their home, uh, except for the new telehealth that's not telehealth code that we might talk about later. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, but most commercial payors will. So that's kind of the stuff, you know, if you, you go to their sites, look at their telehealth policies, it will tell you what they do and don't pay for, what settings they'll pay for them in. Also, the CPT book has added a special icon to the CPT codes that they believe are services that should be covered as telehealth services. The symbol in the book is a star. Uh, they also have an appendix in the back, which is Appendix P, as in Paul, that uh, specifically lists all of the services that CPT thinks should be covered by telehealth all in one place for you. Oh, that's good. So Appendix P is very important. And so would that list specific CPT codes in it yes. that are billable? What, so give us an example. Like for, uh, I'm wondering, the E&M code, established patient visits, new patient visits, are those bill possibly bill billable as telehealth? Definitely. So yes, got it has um, uh, E&M visits. We have uh, psychotherapy visits. There's um, transitional care management um, and end-stage renal disease services. So there's a whole listing of things that are covered by Medicare and commercial payors for telehealth that are listed there in that appendix. Okay, but then they, they're covered, but then uh, folks still need to follow the Medicare rules about, for example, you were mentioning they, the visit, the patient can't actually be physically located in their home for that telehealth visit, although a payor might cover them if they're in their home. I know, actually, Dr. Atanda told us about that in his interview. He talked about the, how he's seen behaviors of patients change when they're making dinner and uh, the kids are screaming in the background. They actually want to make the visit shorter than if they were in his <laughs> office. <laughs> they would imagine that wanting to make the visit longer. He thought that was an interesting, an interesting turn of events. Um, so, but Medicare doesn't always, doesn't pay if the person isn't at home. Correct. For those codes. Okay. And you know, you mentioned earlier this this term virtual. You and I were talking before we we hit record, and I I'd like you to just kind of give a sense for the listeners between the terms I always hear: virtual check-in and virtual visit, and Medicare's definition of what those are. I mean, just what's the difference? Well, technically, all telehealth services are virtual visits because you're doing them remotely. You're doing them electronically through, you know, um, uh, through your tablets or your laptops and the, the equipment that they have at the, you know, at the originating and distant sites. Um, so technically, all telehealth are virtual visits. Sometimes people will also call them remote visits. Okay. So that's also another term that people will use. But this year, and this was the little telehealth that's not telehealth code I was talking about, Medicare has added a virtual check-in code. Okay. And it's a G code. It's a HCPCS 2 code, which is G2012. Uh, and it's for a virtual check-in. Now, Medicare has said we're not considering that a regular telehealth code. Um, and the reason why is because that one can be done over the phone. So they're calling it a virtual check-in, but it just means uh, for that code that the patient is not in your office. And that code they will pay if the patient is in their home. Okay. So this new virtual check-in G2012, it can be done by the phone or using some sort of a telehealth software program where you can see each other. And yes. from a Medicare standpoint, you could be, the patient could be in their home to use that one. But the pre, before this year, before the, that code, um, the telehealth guidelines from Medicare are that even if you use those, the E&M codes, the patient cannot be in their home. That is correct. Oh, good. Yes. Wow. I've learned something it. today. Thank you as the <laughs> non-coder in the studio today, for sure. Um, thank you very much. So, um, and I want to back up to, you mentioned that Medicare has some great resources. We're going to put that in the show notes. We'll put a couple of links there. That's going to be one of them. Obviously, we can't put links to every payor site, but I heard you saying to listeners that 
you, they need to go to each individual payer site to, fi to find out what their specific guidelines are. Um, so they can do that on their own and then we'll provide some links to Medicare. Um, and I also, I think this is a good time to mention, I'd like to put in the show links, uh, you did a white paper, I believe, for um, Johnson & Johnson that's got a nice primer of telehealth if people are thinking about it. And we'll put that in the show notes as well that people can download as a good resource. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about what, we, what folks can do to start. Sounds like they need to do their research on what the requirements are for each payer. And then um, what would be next? So they've gathered all this stuff. What, what happens after that um, as we move along the implementation of the billion coding piece? Well, um, what they want to make sure they're doing, uh, depending on how they're offering the service, um, if the patient's paying for it him or herself instead of uh, the payor, like what their platform is that they're giving these services out for. Mm -hmm. um, for Medicare for billing, the big thing is to ensure that they are meeting those Medicare guidelines, okay. as with anything with Medicare. You know, they do have specific sites that a patient can be in, as I was saying before. Those are called the originating site. That's where the patient is at when the service is getting done. A patient for Medicare has to be located in a county outside of a metropolitan statistical area, or MSA, or in a rural healthcare professional shortage area, or a HIPSA, located in a rural census tract. And of course, that can change depending on how the census tract is changing. So sometimes it's hard to tell. So another link that I think would be good for you to share with your listeners is that there is a website that is run by the uh, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, that um, a practice can go to and they can put in the address and click a button and it will tell them if they're allowed to do telehealth there or not. Oh, very helpful. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes too. So the HRSA website, so they can check on that. Because is there, you know, I'm thinking about like, if I'm a billing manager or practice manager listening, what are the top things I need to be thinking about? That's certainly one of them before we even schedule them, right? To find out if, yes. if it's a Medicare patient, let's make sure they're in a, a place that's reimbursable. Um, as, and, then and then I imagine, is there a, a disclosure form or something that we need to provide the patients about billing for telehealth? Well, with, as with anything for, especially for Medicare, um, if there's a service that you're billing to the patient that they may be responsible for some of the bill for, mm -hmm. they need to consent to that service. So um, there should be consents that the practice has for patients. They can get it verbally and document that the patient gave verbal consent for the telehealth service. Or if a patient is present for a visit and you say, hey, for your next visit, if you want to do it, you know, by remote means, you want to try telehealth, here's our consent form that you can sign that says you're okay with us doing the, you know, doing visits uh, by telehealth. Okay. And so then they would just put that in the patient's record that they did consent to the services. Okay, great. Um, it can be in the patient. It doesn't have to be a separate piece of paper that's signed. It can be in the note in the patient's record, or do you suggest a, I, yes, like an I assignment of benefits yes. kind of a signature? You a yes. thing? Yes, I suggest it's like that, like how they sign the, the um, assignment of benefits kind okay. of thing where it just says, we're, I'm okay with getting the visit by telehealth. And I understand that, you know, I'll still be responsible for co-insurance and co-pays and all that stuff. Okay, great. Um, and let, let's talk a little bit about the charging the patient. So mm -hmm. sometimes it may not be covered. What, um, what are the, are there any restrictions on charging the patient or how, how can practices finesse that part of the collections process? And is there any kind of a standard charge that uh, you see out there in practices or a range of fees that could be charged um, if a patient's plan doesn't cover it? Well, there are companies uh, like Teladoc, CareClix, American Well, just as some examples, mm -hmm. that allow patients to go online, like if it's not with connected to a practice. So here's my little strategy in my head. So a patient could go online to those and connect with a physician that offers remote medical services. The patient can like create an account and click on the type of services they need, and they can be matched with the physician that offers them that service. So what I suggest for 
group practices that are looking to offer that to their patients, they can go to these sites and they do list their price ranges. And usually they'll range, and I've seen privately them range from anywhere from $40 to like $80. Sometimes they'll have a flat standard fee for an office visit um, by remote means. Other times they'll say, well, whatever the level of service would be, that's the level that we're going to charge you. But sometimes they reduce that because they're not taking on the practice expense for mm -hmm. the patient showing up. So there's kind of different ways that I see people do it. Well, and those sound pretty reasonable. I mean, I'm thinking of me as a patient, you know, I, if I could save myself a trip to the physician office and waiting and I would, I would absolutely pay that if my plan didn't cover it. Seems very like a good, good value to me. So, yes. so practices shouldn't be afraid to consider that um, charging the patient you know, the patients most likely will embrace those kinds of, uh, it, you know, if it's in that range, I would imagine most yes. working patients for sure. They see it as a real convenience. That's how I yes. work. I imagine like a working mom or somebody would have to take off work to take their child in uh, would be a lot easier to do telehealth. Yes. yes. All right. Well, what, what other pieces of advice do you have for billing managers and office managers who are about to consider this and look into um, implementing and billing for telehealth services? Um, well, one is, as I say, you know, have a backup plan because as with all technology, things just don't always go as you plan them. Um, and one physician, uh, for instance, that I talked with said that he has his phone and a tablet ready when he performs mm -hmm. a telehealth visit in case he loses the connection for some reason. So, you know, those things may happen. And if they do, you know, you, just don't panic. You know, it's, it's gonna, at some point it'll, you know, you'll have some bugs that you need to work through. Uh, I also think that the benefits of telehealth visits, you know, haven't been fully highlighted to patients. You know, a lot of patients might have that benefit with their insurance plan and they don't even know it. Um, oh. So they, the practices need to kind of advertise those benefits, talk okay. to the patients about telehealth visits, how they would work for them and get them to buy into it. You know, um, for example, a surgical practice can advise uh, on the benefits of having remote visits after surgery. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, what patient wants to drive to an office, wait in the office, then wait in the patient room for a quick visit with the physician or the APP after surgery when they're in pain, they may have mobility issues, you know, when they could say, hey, you know, we could do this uh, post-op check remotely. Mm -hmm. I, I think a, a lot of people would jump on it. Yep. Great point. Also, I think, um, you know, that um, places should start small, you know, work out their kinks, and then expand the practices offerings from there. They don't have to go full out from day one, just giving it to everybody all the time. So just kind of take it in little pieces as you get more comfortable with it, expand it a little bit and a little bit more, and uh, then I think it would be a lot smoother. Great. All good advice. I love the idea of starting small. I mean, I'm always a fan of a pilot. <laughs> you know, yes. you, you can learn a little bit, right? Let's make it a pilot. Let's do one doctor or one physician assistant or somebody, you know, who's willing to, to participate and see what we learn, see what patients tell us and what we forgot to tell them and tweak it a little bit. So yes. that's great. And survey patients, that's always a good thing, too, when they're getting yeah. the services, you know, to say, how did you like it having it this way? Did you see any problems? What didn't you like? You know, and, and that could also help them as they move along. Right. Well, I can imagine that the responses from those can be part of the marketing. Yes. Afterward, right? So 90% of our patients love, felt, felt that it was, you know, just as good as an in-person visit and more convenient or whatever it is that they ask. So great. All good tips. All right. Well, I know you're very busy, so thank you so much, Betty, for joining us on Sound Practice. These are great, pithy tips, just what practices need to get going on their billing and coding for telehealth. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome, and thank you for having me. Tothi, I'm so happy that both Dr. Atenda and Betty joined us today. They really know their stuff because they've been in the thick of it. Yes, I have spoken with Dr. Atanda several times over the last couple of years, and I'm amazed at how he has just basically just stepped up, volunteered, figured out how telehealth works. I mean, volunteered in his organization and really just, um, just did it. And he's finding that telehealth is really working for him and his patients, and he's quite a trailblazer 
And um, as he learns a lot, he shares that out. I know he's been speaking at other events and conferences and really trying to get other physicians engaged in telehealth and uh, offer something great for patients and their families. Yeah, definitely a good guy, right? So we cannot forget to tell our listeners that in the show notes, we've put the white paper that you and Betty uh, talk about, A Surgeon's Guide to Getting Started with Telehealth, which, let's face it, is really appropriate for all specialties, not just surgical specialties, right? Yes. So we put that in the show notes. And um, Betty features Dr. Atanda as one of the examples in that paper. And she has a checklist of specific things that practices can do if they're moving forward with telehealth and how they can kind of get started making sure that what's payable and and how you would submit um, a claim for that. And I also put into the show notes those two links that Betty talked about during our interview, the Medicare Learning Network material about telehealth and reimbursement and the HRSA Payment Eligibility Analyzer. So I hope folks go to soundpracticepodcast.com, grab all three resources for educating themselves and their teams how to get going with telehealth. Definitely good stuff. And with that, Tothi, we have come to the end of this episode of Sound Practice. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you liked our show, please tell your colleagues. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We sure would appreciate that, wouldn't we, Mike? And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, please email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. And please join us for our next episode. Don't forget, we release one every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com.